Before we begin this episode, we want to give a heads up to our listeners. We will be talking about adult content in this episode. So if you're listening with littles nearby, now is your warning to pop on your headphones. Since we first began collecting stories, it became evident that there is an epidemic of unhealthy teaching regarding biblical manhood and womanhood. At first, we thought maybe it was just a struggle for power within the church, but we quickly started hearing more and more stories about the ways in which these teachings were being used to enable abuse on every level, from the pulpit to the office to the home. I found Sheila Gregoire on Twitter and immediately ordered her book. The things she was saying made sense. The way we teach about men and women is directly affecting marriages, sex, the health of platonic male-female relationships, and ultimately causing harm, shame, and brokenness. We asked Sheila to guest because we have seen the way that Acts 29 leaders have platformed problematic books like Driscoll's Real Marriage and devalued women in sermon after sermon. We are honored to add her voice to our community and hope that through conversations like this, we can all work towards healing and flourishing. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. So first, I want to thank you for spending time with us. Um, you know, my wife and I read the book, which of course is the great, uh, great sex rescue uh, that you co-authored, correct, with with two other ladies. Yes, my yes. daughter and a, another researcher. Yep. Okay, and your book is amazing. Um, my wife and I we read it together. It was super informative, but also very healing. And um, I feel like we got a lot out of it because after we would read a chapter, we would talk about it. And so it was it was a great book and it's just a great resource. So we wanted to have you on because we are in our podcast. We uh, feature stories of abuse survivors in Acts 29. The sadly, as we're getting a lot of these stories, what we're seeing is a lot of women uh, coming to us with a lot of shame, being belittled and shamed and uh, really discarded by church leaders. Uh, Their gifts are not valued. And a lot of them are coming with a lot of baggage that not only emotional baggage, but also just a lot of spiritual hurt. And when I read through your book, I was like, wow, like a lot of this is probably happening in these stories behind the scenes as well. It's just heartbreaking. So we, we think this book is a great resource, so we appreciate your time and, and answering some of our questions. We think our listeners will get a lot out of it. I would love to start with what led you to writing this book. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a story. So I was a mommy blogger in 2008. I was, you know, parenting, housework, organizing, all that kind of stuff. But every now and then I would write about sex and then my traffic would grow. And so I thought, wow, well, that's a thing. So I kept writing about sex and I I became the Christian sex lady, which is weird. No one grows up thinking I want to be the Christian sex lady because that's just odd. Um, And then in 2012, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex was out. I wrote 31 Days to Great Sex. I was creating courses. I was blogging every day. But the one thing I hadn't done was read other Christian marriage and sex books. 
hadn't read a thing because I was always afraid I was going to plagiarize. And I'm like, they love Jesus. I love Jesus. We all love Jesus. We must be saying the same thing. Fast forward, January, a Friday afternoon, 2019. I have a migraine. I'm procrastinating. I don't want to work. And I was on Twitter, which is where I met you guys. But I, I'm on Twitter and there's a fight breaking out because some people are saying they need respect more than love. And referring to Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect, which is best-selling marriage book in North American churches. And it, the thesis is that men need respect and women need love. And I thought, I have that book upstairs, but I've never read it. So I'll go get it. So I went and got it, opened to the sex chapter. And I read to my horror, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. And mm -hmm. the need is for physical release. Not a word about intimacy, not a single word in that entire chapter about how sex is supposed to feel good for women, too. In fact, he even says, why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time? So it's like, OK, this is bad. And I thought, if this is what we're doing, then what's going on in all the other books? And I spent a week on my blog talking about love and respect, and we heard from hundreds of women who said that that book enabled abuse in their marriage. We created a report, sent it to, to focus on the family. I had been on the show three times. They knew me. I thought they'd listen, and they blew me off. And so we just thought, you know, I had two people working for me who know how to do research. I had a woman who has a master's in epidemiology and is a statistician. And then my daughter, a psychometrics grad in survey design. And we just thought they can ignore several hundred, but can they ignore 20,000? So we'll just do the biggest research project that has ever been done of Christian women's sexual marital satisfaction and see if evangelical messages are messing everything up. And they are. Well, wow, that's when did that survey start? So uh, it, it ran from November to January of 2012. We stopped. We ended just before COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just before COVID. Yep. Good timing. Wow. Yeah. So I mentioned to Jonna um, that I, I read Every Man's Battle. I, I don't remember much about the book, but when I was in my 20s, I read that book. And as I was reading through your book and I saw some of the quotes from not only Every Man's Battle, but other other books that you reference, like Cheap Music, I actually became very distressed and uh, very concerned because not only were they presenting this damaging view of sex, but in my opinion, they were also creating a culture, this hurtful culture by misusing scripture to justify their positions. It almost seemed like it was creating more of like a predatory type of culture with, with the way that men mm -hmm. view sex, which was super concerning. You were very gracious to these authors in the book um, when you reference them. Uh, I mean, very gracious. And I, I was like just, shockingly gracious. Yeah. Like for the pushback you get. I'm like, she's so nice to all these yeah. people. <laughs> I just was wondering, you know, have you have you been able to talk to any of these authors or have any of them reached out to you to have like a dialogue? Because I would think that they would they would want that because of all the research that you did to find your results. So, oh, you're counting on your hands. <laughs> We've had three lawsuit threats. Oh, wow. Okay. For what? They can't sue you for anything. You're qu yeah, I know. quoting them. I know. <laughs> That's slander. <laughs> I'm slandering you. How exactly am I slandering you? I am quoting you. Exactly. In context. 
we there was a recording of Mark Gunger, whom we didn't criticize in the book, but he there was a recording where he said he had a conversation with Shanti Feldon, Kevin Lehman, and uh, Emerson Egrich about what how to handle me. Shanti Feldon put out a, a statement um, saying that I wasn't going about things in a kingdom way. Yeah, no one, no one has engaged with our findings because that's the thing, right? Like this, this book is different because this book is not my opinion. I mean, it is my opinion, but that's not the basis of it. The basis of it is we asked 20,000 women, how's your marital satisfaction? Then we got up close and personal <laughs> and said, how's your sexual satisfaction? All kinds of different measures. And then we presented them with various teachings in the church. And from that, we were able to compare people who did believe something with people who didn't believe something and see if it had a statistically significant impact on different sexual and marital satisfaction outcomes. So this is actual data. And, you know, we're, 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 we presented at the American Physical Therapy Convention in February about our findings on sexual pain. Our data set is now up at Purdue University. We're working on some peer-reviewed papers on, on sexual pain um, and just on our findings in general and on the orgasm gap. Uh, so, so we're doing this right. Like, I, I don't know of any other researcher in mainstream evangelical writings who's actually trying to get peer review. And so we're doing things right. And I think that's why they won't come after us or they won't say anything publicly because they don't know how to. How to. Like, what are they going to say? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, as I read your quotes and I, I went, I thumbed back through Every Man's Battle again. I mean, really, those books are those authors' opinions. Like, they're sharing more opinions in their books than you are. Mm -hmm. Because that's what really struck me about your book was the not only the research, um, but I guess the vast number of responses that you received and you continue to receive mm -hmm. to, to not only— uh, back up the research, but provide you more inf uh, information or, or evidence that this stuff is happening. So, so it's odd that their attack on, or trying to attack on you is is more of like you're not trying to present a kingdom way of doing it. When, in all honesty, I think you're probably doing the best thing possible by really listening mm -hmm. and being empathetic and researching this carefully instead of just like throwing out an opinion. Yeah. And that's what I think the authors don't understand. They're, pre they're presenting themselves as the victim because they're getting yeah. criticized. Yes. The victims are the women and the couples who have been so hurt by these messages because what we, what we measured Evangelicals have twice the rate of sexual pain as the general population. 22.6% of evangelical women experience vaginismus. Most people don't even know what that word is. We have lower orgasm rates. Our libido has been artificially lowered by about 10 points, women's libido, compared to in the secular world. Like we have, we have real outcomes, harm that has been done by a lot of our books. And so these authors are not the victims the readers and the people who have listened to pastors preaching these same messages, because they're everywhere in evangelicalism, mm -hmm. they are the victims and they are the ones who need to be set free. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. So segueing on the on that topic being a research for, you know, let's say the Christian community or the church, have you had any opportunities to speak at churches? I have spoken um, via Zoom to a couple of college classrooms, which has been really fun. I'm in Canada, uh, and with COVID, I just haven't been speaking since yep. the outbreak. Mm -hmm. I live with someone who's at higher risk of COVID, okay. so I've been at home, and we have newborn babies around the corner when, with my daughter. I'm hoping Yay. to start speaking again next year, but uh, but I've been staying pretty close to home and just writing a lot. Do you have churches wanting 
to engage with you at all? You know, I do. We're trying to to figure out our schedule for next year. To tell you the honest truth, after dealing with all of this for a couple of years, I am so turned off of celebrity culture <laughs> that I, I'm, I'm really praying a lot about what I want to do with my life. I, I would love to speak at a lot more seminaries where they teach counseling. Yeah. I would love to do some speaking engagements. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't like celebrity culture. So I'm just, I'm just mm. trying to figure out where my role is here. My blog is big. My social media presence is big. Um, and I really yeah. enjoy that. So I, it's not that I don't want to speak. I just feel like I'm in the middle of critiquing this whole evangelical industrial complex. I don't want to become part of it. <laughs> oh, so man, it, it would be great to have have you at a, a seminary, but g- good luck with that, right? Could you imagine those guys? <laughs> Actually, I no, I no, those have been really open. I, I spoke oh, at good. King's College That's University. Miracle. I'm speaking at Colorado Christian University next year, okay. so there are there are a lot of those. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably just not from the circles we are yeah. engaging in or coming out of <laughs> yes. today. Yeah, the Acts 29, have, SBC yeah. world. Like women are seen as threats when they start engaging in this conversation yep. in a healthy way or they start just educating themselves. Now, in these cultures like Acts 29, I'm speaking to Acts 29 currently right now. Women are becoming are being seen as threats for becoming educated yeah. about healthy sex. Yeah. And that is really concerning to me. On top of when I see you getting attacked online, which I met Sheila on Twitter and I think she's an amazing Twitter follow. So go follow her now if you're not. But I after I read your book and now I've read it two times, the second time I was even more concerned with the pushback you get, because it doesn't make any sense to me that you do get the mm-hmm. pushback you get. So the fact that they even see themselves as, as victims mm-hmm. or see women or you as a threat when they read this book is so concerning to me and really makes me worried for the level of abuse that's happening or being allowed to happen within these contexts. If being educated about healthy sex is the threat. I know I, I know a woman who is under church discipline right now because she shared about our book on social media and talked to her women's group about it. Um, she's probably going to leave that church, but, but this is a, a big problem. And what I think is so interesting, because when people say, well, we don't like your book, I'm like, well, what part don't you like? Because let me share the five big findings with you, okay? And then we'll probably get into them more. But but here's five big things that we found. We have a 47-point orgasm gap between men and women. So 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a sexual encounter compared to about 48% of women. So we have a large orgasm gap. And then there are four big teachings. There's more, but we go into detail on four that harm women. That, and here they are. A woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. A woman should have frequent sex with her husband to stop him from watching porn. All men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. And boys will push your sexual boundaries. So when people say that my book is dangerous, I like to ask, which of those things do you agree with then? Do you like the orgasm gap? Do you think women are responsible for men's porn use? (laughs) Like what what exactly is it that is so dangerous? But what I've witnessed is something I witness 
abusive leaders do often, whether it's this in this conversation or other conversations when they're faced with criticism is they are not actually even engaging you in those conversations. Mm -hmm. They don't even answer you when you say that. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you disagree with? Like, let's have a good faith conversation. It just goes immediately to, I think back to a previous episode we did where they talked about every time I would try to bring criticism to the table, they would just go personal and start going into these personal attacks and like mm-hmm. deflect by personally attacking me. And I see that happen regularly when it comes to you trying to engage these men on these topics. And it's mm-hmm. very concerning. So Sheila, do they just not respond when you bring those points up or do they try to do those personal attacks that John had mentioned? Yeah, most of all, what they say is, well, we just think you're being unfair to the other authors. That's the big thing. And this is this is what differentiates our book because... You know, we did this survey of 20,000 women. We figured out which messages were wrong, were harmful. And, and actually like, okay, if you believe the obligation sex message, she's twice as likely to experience sexual pain. You know, her, she's 37% less likely to orgasm. Like we can put numbers on all this stuff, right? So once we did that, we then read uh, the top 10 marriage books in evangelicalism and the top six iconic sex books. Three of the marriage books didn't talk about sex. We excluded them from our study. So we had 13 of the best-selling sex and marriage books, and we read them to see where those messages were. And we found them galore. There were certain books, Gift of Sex by the Penners, amazing book, no problems, highly recommended. Boundaries in Marriage, highly recommended. So not all the books were awful, okay? Boundaries in Marriage, amazing Gift of Sex, amazing. We created a 12-point rubric of healthy sexuality. Gift of Sex scored 47 out of 48, but Love and Respect literally scored zero. So it's not like you couldn't score well. Boundaries in Marriage scored 42, okay? Like you, right. you could score well, but some of our books scored pathetically. Every Man's Battle scored nine. My daughter and I disagreed. She would have given it a five, but I gave them points <laughs> for something she wouldn't have. So... <laughs> You know, um, like that one scored nine for women only, I think scored 11. Like these are very harmful books. And that's what people don't like is that I called out specific authors. But you also say, and I, I'm trying to think of this, this might be the wrong direct quote. So correct me if I'm wrong. You say something like, if you have gained something that's helpful for you and your marriage from these books, then that's great. I'm not asking you to throw that out, but I, we do have to point out these things that are harmful. And I mm-hmm. thought that was like such a gracious way to enter this conversation. You weren't like, burn it all down. And everyone's sorry. <laughs> if you can't tell, I am recovering from laryngitis right now. So <laughs> that's why I sound this way. But you were so gracious and you really enter the conversation in a way that is very good faith. So I just commend you on that. And I'm really grateful for you in this space. And I would love, Jay, if we could shift into talking with her a little bit about Acts 29. Oh, yeah. On our podcast, Sheila, John and I focus on abuse survivor stories within the Acts 29 network. So Acts 29 was is a church play network that was co-founded by Mark Driscoll. Of course, Mark mm-hmm. is no longer with the network. He hasn't been with the network, I think, for about eight, eight to 10 years. But what we found when we're hearing these stories is that, you know, Mark's views on women— uh, specifically women in marriage, are very much alive within Acts 29 churches. 
And as we, we read through your book, you know, we, we couldn't help but make a correlation. When you have a church that has an unhealthy view of women's roles or a woman's role within a church, uh, you mm-hmm. probably have a good chance that there's a destructive view of sex and sexuality being taught. And so for, for us, you know, we would love to hear, based on the research that you've, you've done and the people you've talked with, what are some of the long-term impacts that these harmful teachings have to men and women? How do they damage and hurt them long-term? Well, speaking of women's roles in the church, let me let me give you one snapshot. This one's not actually about sex, but I found this fascinating. So we asked women what you believe about gender roles, about marriage roles, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of women, quite typically, as you would imagine in the evangelical church, believe that the husband should make the final decision in the marriage, um, that submission to his leadership is an important part of biblical womanhood and of their role, et cetera. So large numbers of women believe that. But when you actually look at how people make decisions, the majority of people who believe the husband should make the final decision actually don't practice that. They practice equality and making decisions together. As soon as you do have the husband make the final decision, even if he consults with the wife first, your divorce rate increases 7.4 times. Wow. And your marital satisfaction craters. Now, John Gottman out of the out of uh, the University of Washington, the Gottman Institute, foremost um, secular marriage researcher, has found similar numbers. He finds that when the husband doesn't share power, so when he makes the final decisions, the divorce rate is about 81 percent. So we're right in line with Gottman there. And yet, isn't that what we are taught that marriage must be, that the husband must make the final decision? But most people who believe it don't practice it. And so every pastor who believes this but doesn't practice it, but is preaching it, you know, 20, I think it's 21% of couples will end up practicing it and it's going to hurt them. And it's so sad, so sad, because it's putting so much shame on couples that don't practice it too, because you're like, what if Mm -hmm. something's wrong with us that we have Mm -hmm. like a, a loving mutual relationship, you start questioning that good relationship that you have because it doesn't fit what your pastor is telling you is right in God's Mm -hmm. eyes. Yeah, exactly. So I like to say, I like to say to pastors, you need to preach what you practice because most pastors are actually mutual. I think for us, what we've, we've seen is, you know, Acts 29, one of their core tenets is complementary or they believe in complementarianism. So it's a it's a core tenet for them. They believe in gender roles and the men are called to be elders and pastors and not women. And what we see is that there's no room at the table for other people that have different opinions. And I can't, I, I, it just shocks me. And like when we, when we read books uh, like your book with so much research that you've done, that proves that when we have those types of views about gender roles, it can produce such unhealthy things within marriages. I just, I just wish these pastors would just be open to the dialogue of saying, maybe mm-hmm. there's another way. And that's what John and I get very concerned about is that we think that, you know, a lot of these pastors are just, they don't want to hear it. They just don't want to listen. Yeah. And their, their flock are suffering for that. And it's just really, it's really hurtful. I think that there's an elevation of, doctrine over practice. But Jesus did not do that. 
Jesus said that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And so you can judge things by their fruit. And that's what the great sex rescue is really trying to do is we are judging our evangelical teachings by their fruit. And the Amen. fruit of the idea that, that men need to, men are in charge. Men's opinions are more important uh, that men have sexual needs and women don't, uh, that women are here to service men, all of that has tremendously bad fruit. And not just for women, for men too. <laughs> like the, cup, the couple is, is suffering. And we've since surveyed men and we found very similar things with men. Um, and so all of this has really bad fruit. And yet they're afraid to let go of it. And the only reason that I can come up with is that they are more interested in keeping men in power than in actually creating healthy Jesus-centered relationships. Mm -hmm. spot, I spot on. Mm -hmm. Or amen. Can we say an amen? An amen. <laughs> yeah, we definitely can. Because even the subtitle of your book says the lies you've been taught and how to recover what God intended. I think that's that's just so beautiful, and uh, we should want we should all want that. Mm -hmm. To me, like when I was reading your book. A lot of the things that um, are areas that, thankfully, in my marriage, we really don't struggle with. But I also was like, man, it's so refreshing how you embrace sex and sexuality to be something that is a gift from God and how it is meant for not only our pleasure and enjoyment, but to bring that oneness and closeness. And we're supposed to have fun with it. And it's just refreshing to just hear such empathetic and graceful words when talking about sex and marriage and sexuality. Whereas growing up in the SBC church and, and Acts 29, it's not there. <laughs> it's not there. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a one-way street. Um, and it's a, it's a hard line street too. So. Yeah. I really appreciated your book. I saw myself in a lot of your book just because I was raised in a very fundamentalist setting so the only way that I was taught about sex really was like, it's going to be great when you're married, but like, you're probably never going to want to have sex. Your husband's going to want to have sex. And this is how you serve him. Like it was not ever a mutual relationship in my mind. And my husband is not that way at all. And actually my husband wasn't really raised in like a very churchy family. So he comes into our marriage without that baggage and is like so kind and patient and sweet and loving. But to see on pages like how my brain got to where it was mm -hmm. when we got married and to see the effects of that teaching that entered into our marriage that God had to redeem and thank God he did. But it's so sad to me that our faith leaders are not embracing that beauty and bringing more of their flock into this freedom. Like, why are we raising our children and our flocks, our every age to view sex as this like horrible, worldly, awful, evil, wicked thing? It's not the way we're taught about it. It's not beautiful. It's not godly. And I really appreciate that you bring beauty to the conversation. And I don't know why we're so afraid to talk about these things and the beauty of them. And it doesn't have to be vulgar. Like the only way we hear about it, it in Acts 29, honestly, the only way I ever taught, I've heard it talked about in Acts 29 is like my smoking hot wife and really like mm -hmm. how Driscoll talked about it. Like, can I be vulgar? Can I test the line? 
I drink whiskey and smoke cigars with other pastors and I talk about my wife like they are porn stars is the only way I've heard sex talked about. And unfortunately, with the hundreds of stories I hear from women, this is a common theme for many women in the network that they were taught that this is how you exist in a marriage. This is your calling. This is who you are. You're a sex object. And it's harmed not only marriages, but it's also harmed single women who are not married, who are taught that this is their only value in this space. I, I like to say that what we've done in the church is we've turned sex into an entitlement for men and an obligation for women. And that's just created a lot of ugliness. But I think it goes even even deeper than that, because what is the definition of sex? Like, like if I if I ask what the average person, what is sex, they will describe something. Well, they'll be awkward and they'll think I'm really weird, but then they'll they'll end up <laughs> describing something that sounds a lot like intercourse. Right. Yeah. Put A into slot B. You know, he moves around climaxes, whatever. Um, but that's what's that's what we picture is intercourse. The problem with that is that it doesn't include her experience. She's an extra to that whole thing because she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be lying there in emotional turmoil. She could even be being coerced and it would still count as having sex. And so she doesn't matter with our definition. And that's not the way the Bible talks about it. You know, the first time sex is explicitly mentioned, Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And it's easy to think, okay, God's just embarrassed of using the real word there. But but that's not what's going on. Because the, the Hebrew root for to know in that verse is the same as in the Psalms when David says, search me and know me, O God. It's this deep intimacy, this deep longing to be connected. You know, so sex is intimate. From Song of Solomon, we see that it is pleasurable for both. She is having a really good time. She has more <laughs> words than he does in that book. Okay, so sex is pleasurable for both. And in 1 Corinthians 7, the most misused verses in the Bible towards women, <laughs> it's actually mutual. It's mutual. So sex is something which is mutual, intimate, and pleasurable for both. That is the picture. That means that she matters. She mm. has to matter. But when you tell women you are obligated to give him sex, like Kevin Lehman, for instance, okay, in sheet music, he talks about how her period is a difficult time for her husband. Okay. <laughs> Every woman <laughs> listening to this is just dying right now. So when she is bleeding from her genitals and cramping, that's difficult for her husband. And so what she should do is give him a hand job or oral sex during those that five-day period, because otherwise he can be tempted to use pornography. And somehow we think that's Christian advice. <laughs> um, and but, but when you turn sex into an obligation, then it's no longer a knowing. Because if, it's, if sex is supposed to be this deep knowing, then it means that both of you have to be coming to the bedroom or wherever you are, but bringing all of you. You're saying, this is who I am. I want to experience this with you. I want to experience you. But as soon as it's an obligation, you're saying her needs don't matter. Her wants don't matter, which means she is being erased. Instead of it being a knowing, it becomes an owing. It's an erasure of her as a person. And that's what we're doing is we are erasing women 
And no wonder our bodies revolt, our libidos fall, and in the case of the obligation sex message, our chances of of experiencing sexual pain increase to almost the same statistical effect as if we had been abused. There's a Mm -hmm. 0.1% differential in the confidence intervals there. So it's almost the same statistical effect because our bodies experience the obligation sex message as trauma. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. And when you're talking, I'm even thinking to something as simple as growing up. And I, I, again, I hear this story time and time again from other women within the network or within just the Restless Reformed movement. I think I was 11 years old and my mom was pulled aside while I was working in nursery. I was wearing a tank top and knee length like bloomer shorts and told that I needed to dress more appropriately because I was causing the men in the church to stumble. And at the time I was so embarrassed And then teenage me a couple years later was like, whatever, I'll wear whatever I want. And adult me looks back at that and realizes they were sexualizing me as an 11-year-old girl. And we're doing that Mm -hmm. to women from baby age before they even hit puberty. Mm -hmm. We're allowing the church to sexualize women. And when we have that view of them, how are we ever going to respect them? When they walk in the doors and say something profound or just exist or have a voice of any type, how are we going to look at them as anything but an object that we have sexualized their entire life? It's horrific. I think it comes back to this idea that all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. That is that is taught everywhere. (laughs) And it's assumed it's this genetic thing. But when you believe that all men struggle with lust, then there's nothing a man can do. That's just, and, and every man's battle literally says that. We know, we, we see the reason we get to sexual sin. We got there naturally simply by being male. And it's in a companion book, Every Heart Restored, Steve Arterburn says that men just don't naturally have that Christian view of sex. Okay, so is, men just are made, God made men. <laughs> To not understand sex and to not like God made men so the objectification of women and male sexuality are one and the same thing. And so if that's true and if men can't help it, then the only way to stop men from sinning is for women to do something. And that means that that they need to cover up so they don't cause other people to lust and then they have to become the personal porn star in the bedroom. You know, and and what what makes me sad is that Gary Thomas, who's who's quite a big author, and he wrote, you know, Sacred Marriage, a lot of big marriage books. He read The Great Sex Rescue before he came out. So he knew what our findings said. But in his book, Married Sex, which he wrote with Deb Felita, which was out in October, he still is spreading the same message. He tells the story of a woman who got nude photos taken for her husband so that neurologically he would fixate on her nude body instead of other nude bodies. Like why any pastor would encourage women to send nude photos to their husbands is beyond me. And they do. They talk about this woman who was reluctant to text her husband nude photos, but then she didn't want to unnecessarily deny him as if he has the right to them. You know, and this, again, is a Southern Baptist pastor. I don't know if that's an Acts 29 church, Houston Second Baptist, but. There well, the SBC and Acts 29, are, uh, there are a lot of—we've found that there are some churches that are an Acts 29 church that also have an affiliation with the SBC, and both of them mm-hmm. believe in complementarian 
organizations that have similar views on gender roles. I like to say that there's one cloth and we're all cut from the same yeah. cloth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. Just different people are making the money, unfortunately, yeah. is how I feel yeah. about them. That message that all men struggle with lust, it's the, it's the message that lowers women's libidos the most. And women who believe it in high school or who are taught it in high school, like just, just, they just hear it in high school, even if they don't believe it now, it lowers their libidos now and it lowers their trust in their husbands. Like this really messes girls up. And I think it's because like my daughter at 11 had the same thing you, you had happen. You know, Sunday school teacher comes to her and tells her she has to dress differently because of the men in the church. Like she, she wouldn't go to church for weeks after that. It was awful. You know, <laughs> there's so much shame. Yeah. But the, but then what is our, what is the way that men are told to deal with this? Like if you look at the book, Every Man's Battle, they have a twofold approach to dealing with sexual sin and with lust. The first is to bounce your eyes so that you never look at a woman. I was told that so much growing up. Like if you're walking into an office and there's a receptionist, you need to not look, you need to turn away from the receptionist and pretend she's not there. So you need to not look at women. You need to bounce your eyes. Um, in one place on, on Steve Arterburn's website, he has uh, how to stop lust. You need to name your enemies. Like, realize what your enemies are. And one of the possibilities is female joggers. So female joggers are your enemy. It, it, it's the same language as the Atlanta shooter. Yeah. Right? He shot up, he shot up the, the massage parlors because they were his enemies. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so bounce your eyes. What I find so interesting about that is that Jesus never refused to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And when you bounce your eyes, you still are treating women like they're sex objects. Mm-hmm. You're just, but, but, and you're, what you're doing is you're transferring your shame onto her because now she's, now she feels like there's something wrong with me. The, the number of women I have heard from who say that the men in church will not look at them or talk to them. Like if they're walking towards someone in a hall and there's only the two of them in the hall, he will look at the wall because I cannot look at a woman. It's so dehumanizing. You know, so that's one way women, that's one thing men are supposed to do. They're supposed to bounce their eyes. The other thing they're supposed to do is transfer all their sexual energy onto their wife. So instead of looking at porn, they're supposed to treat their wife like that. And it says to women um, in the edition that we read that women can be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. So we are the methadone for his sex addictions. And... (laughs) Again, never once says anything about women feeling good during sex, about intimacy or anything. It just says, um, do the right thing, give him release. I, I, when I was growing up, the bouncing your eyes thing was really big. I remember like when I was in my you know 20s or so, that like tormented me because I, it was impossible to do because it makes you... Like if you look at someone and you think that person is beautiful, right? You're like, oh, that 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 person that I'm seeing is a beautiful person. There's nothing wrong with that, but yet that whole bouncing your eyes thing it makes everyone to a man like be some sort of sexual threat or something that's so <laughs> ludicrous. So like you can't even yeah. like focus or have a normal conversation because in my brain I was like, am I am I attracted to this person? Am I am I lusting toward them? What am I doing? And it, for a man, it creates a lot of shame and guilt and confusion and hurt mm-hmm. and pain. Mm-hmm. So like their whole strategy that they do that they they're talking about not only does it does it not work, it hurts women and men. 
basically mm-hmm. the, the same type of way, but it's just a different form of shame. Mm-hmm. It's just really hurtful. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the John Eldridge books, who he writes a lot about like every uh, like heart, uh, what's it? wild at heart, wild and, at heart, yeah, all those books where like guys are supposed to like conquer the world and be superheroes, mm-hmm. and like it seems like there's this idea out there of like this. Um, this image that Jesus is carrying like the American flag and a machine gun. And we all need to like follow that or for your case, the Canadian flag, right? Like we all need to go after it. And like, it's so hurtful and not only is it wrong, but it's just really hurtful to us as believers, but also to men and women in different ways. And I just don't know how to break out of that. Like, I don't know how we get people to wake up and start viewing mm-hmm. genders in a in a healthy way and start viewing viewing ourselves the way that God intends us to view ourselves and viewing each other that way too it's just it's just crazy so mm-hmm. yeah well it comes first by seeing each other as more than sexual beings as whole people made in the image of God you think about Jesus in John 4 sitting down with the Samaritan woman and talking to her and how she was the first person that he explicitly told that he was the Messiah you know in that one-on-one conversation. And if the authors of Every Man's Battle had actually bothered to look at the peer-reviewed research around lust and around the sexualization of women, they would have learned that there have been multiple experiments done that the best way to fight lust is to see women as whole people. And there's different things that you can do to help you with that. But it, it it's not bouncing your eyes. It's choosing to look in the right way, mm-hmm. which is how Jesus treated women and which is how the disciples treat women, which is how Paul treated women. You think about how in, in Romans 16, was it 10 of the 29 people that are mentioned in Romans 16 are female? Uh, and they're And they're more likely to be mentioned in terms of the work that they did in the church than the men are. Don't. Romans 16, <laughs> Sheila, you're going to get us in trouble when you start talking about women in Romans. <laughs> you don't, these, these people are, they want us to read they the were ESV all Bible. Men. Yeah, they're all men. <laughs> That's funny you bring that up because I've had that discussion about Romans 16. And I actually talked to somebody one time and I said, just read another, they were reading the ESV Bible. And I said, just read another version of the Bible. And I gave them like the NIV and they came back to me and they were like, yeah, there are women in that in that section. I was like, yeah, because the ESEV changed all of them to masculine names. So. But how many pastors today in Acts 29, if they were told to write a letter of salutation to the people who helped them in their ministry, how many of them would name 10 out of 29 women? Like how many of them would have that high proportion being women? And if Paul did that in the early church, sad. yeah, then why why have we strayed so far from that? And I think that's a big reason why we've gotten sex so wrong, too, is because mm-hmm. we see women as extensions or as objects for men to use or who exist there to serve. And that is essentially a dehumanizing thing. And when women feel dehumanized, you can't enjoy sex. And yet, what do we do? And, and it's, I, I think it's so funny because the main, when you look at all of these books, when you listen to a pastor preach, like if pastor is going to preach on sex, there's only one thing he's going to say, right? The main message he's going to say is sex is a gift. You need to do it more, 
right? You need to do it more. Married people, you should be having more sex. And that's what everyone says. You know, you, you need to do it more. If you go into a marriage counseling thing at any of these churches with the biblical counselors, one of the first things they'll ask is, you know, so how often are you having sex? Right? Yeah. Frequency tells us nothing. It does not tell us if the sex was coerced or not, if it was consensual. It does not mm -hmm. tell us if she is having an orgasm. It does not tell us if they feel emotionally close. The only thing frequency tells us is whether or not he is having an orgasm. That's the only thing frequency tells us. And what's so heartbreaking, too, is I know we have listeners because they've reached out. And I know that there are silent victims that are in abusive marriages or have are continuing to be told to stay in abusive marriages because this thought process, when you take it to that end, a woman only exists for her husband as an object. So if he is abusive, if he is sexually abusing her, which does happen in marriages, we know this, we know it is happening in the network today, then women feel like it's their obligation to stay because that's their entire value in the world that's who they are and men have been taught that this is acceptable and they're still being told by pastors by elders by some counselors in these churches that this is an acceptable okay way to exist within marriage and i don't know how to decouple these terrible teachings on sex that your book t mm -hmm. speaks to from the insane amounts of sexual, spiritual, mental, verbal, physical abuse that are happening within not only marriages, but church contexts, staff contexts. Like it's all so balled mm -hmm. together into this mess because we don't view women as humans. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and what's amazing too is in the 13 evangelical books that we looked at, there was a word that was missing. It wasn't in any one of them. And it was the word consent. Mm. Our sexual control book, John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, had a whole section on consent. It was really well done. <laughs> now, boundaries in marriage like did talk about similar issues. They just didn't talk about it specifically in the bedroom. So I, I gave them good marks for that. And so did Gift of Sex. But in general, but like no book actually said consent. And they didn't go into deep detail as to what that would look like in the sexual realm. And in fact, many books even gave examples of marital rape, but didn't call them wrong. The classic one, the worst one, is The Act of Marriage by Tim Beverly LaHaye. He tells the story of this young woman who's getting married and her aunt Matilda comes to her and tells her that marriage is just legalized rape. And that it's just awful and turns her off of sex altogether. And Tim LaHaye is presenting Aunt Matilda as the bad person in this story. She's she's done this terrible thing by making her niece think sex is awful. But he goes on to explain that on Aunt Matilda's wedding night, her husband held her down kicking and screaming while he raped her. And this continued. And then Tim LaHaye says that Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband... So he calls the rapist equally unhappy as the rape victim. And that book went through four different editions and nobody took that anecdote out. So I dedicated, I dedicated my dedication in, in The Great Sex Rescue to Aunt Matilda and everybody like her. 
mm-hmm. that you deserve to be seen. T- Tim LaHaye from the infamous Left Behind series. Yes. He wrote all those those books on Left Behind. And that, like, I remember in chapter, I was pulling up the chapters of that of your book, The Great Sex Rescue, because I remember I, I talked to my wife after reading chapters 9 and 10, uh, which one was called Duty Sex Isn't Sexy, and then chapter 10, When Duty Becomes Coercion. And, like, I, I just went and told my wife, I was like, people are just getting raped for for— because they feel like it's their right to have sex with their wife whenever they want without her asking. And what alarmed me, Sheila, as a man and as someone who has has boys, is the church is really cre- teaching a culture that is almost like a, a predatory or a grooming culture around sex. And it's it's frightening. It's frightening that that isn't being called out in the pulpits to say this is wrong and we need to just rethink how we're approaching sex and sexuality because we're not right. And I I would love to know from your opinion, like how can having a right view of sex and sexuality strengthen not only your own spiritual life, but the spiritual life that you have with your family and your wife? What, what what does your research say or what from your stories have you learned some some things that can help there? When there is high levels of emotional closeness during sex, when there's high levels of marital satisfaction, the sexual relationship is better, but everything is better. And I think what has happened is that in the church, this, this is hard to talk about. I, I got to figure out how to say this well, but Men are not encouraged to be emotionally mature. Okay. Men are encouraged to, you're allowed to show anger if you're a man and you're allowed to show joy, excitement, happiness, but there's not really any other negative feelings you're allowed to show because that would be wimpy. And so a lot of boys grow up unable to really express emotion and very scared of emotional vulnerability. When you combine that with extremely high levels of porn use, Um, We found in our men's survey about 50% of married evangelical men currently are using porn in some way. Uh, But if you look at men under the age of 40, upwards of 80% have had an issue with porn in the past, at least. And porn can teach you that your your gratification is what's important, you know, and and it allows you to feel strong without having to be strong, as Michael John Cusick said. So it gives you this sense that I am strong, but you haven't actually done anything <laughs> to show that. And when it comes to marriage, sex allows you to feel close without having to be close. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is when we see sex as an entitlement or as an obligation, They can go through the motions without there being any emotional connection, but he can feel like there is because often he's channeled his needs for affirmation, his needs for anything into sex because he doesn't know how to relate. He doesn't know how to open up emotionally because our Christian culture has taught him not to do that. And so we're extremely emotionally unhealthy and emotionally immature. Um, And it's amazing how often like Kevin Lehman and Sheet Music talks about how Men are just little boys grown tall. And Tim LaHaye said, like, over and over again, like in a lot of these books, it talks about how men are just little boys. And women need to understand that. It never says women are little girls, but it says men are little boys. 
and we need to understand. So again, it's it's not encouraging emotional wholeness, mm-hmm. and and that's really short circuiting a lot of things. And I think it's the heart of a lot of the reasons that our churches aren't healthy because we can't talk about anything. We can't be if you can't be vulnerable with your wife. How are you going to be vulnerable with anyone else? How are we going to have any authentic relationship if you can't even be authentic in the most vulnerable relationship you're supposed to have? Well, and that right there is a disqualifying character for a pastor. If your household's not in order, if you don't have a right relationship with your wife, if you can't be in solid, good, God-honoring, healthy, vibrant, flourishing relationship in your marriage— then you should not be pastoring a church. Mm -hmm. God said that, not me. I didn't make those qualifications. So we have a lot of men that are in unhealthy marriage dynamics that are not, I don't think a lot of these dudes really are in mutual marriages in, in Acts 29, to be honest with you. I think they are in, a lot of them teeter towards the male dominated, he makes the final say, women shut your mouth and put your head down at the end of the day, I'm making the final call. So if that's what the marriage is, what are we expecting them to do as pastors of a flock? Like, what do we expect Mm -hmm. the fruit to be? And why would we expect it to be any better? Like, we should already know from that relationship right there that he's disqualified and going to do a terrible job at shepherding the flock. Because he can't be a good shepherd in his marriage. I, I always get concerned that it's not necessarily just that some people have a wrong view on sexuality or gender roles, uh, as, and, and they just have yet to come around on it or be enlightened, and they just, you know, one day they will. I, I tend to believe, as we hear more stories, uh, Sheila, from, from our podcast, that these men really believe they're right. And it's ingrained in who they are. And that scares me because um, I want the truth of God more than I want to be right. <laughs> I'm good with being wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Uh, I'd rather the truth of God shine through and that be what we go to versus me being right. And when I read your book and I, and I, and I saw all of these authors quoted, and again, I've read some of these books, I was so hopeful when I was talking to you that you were going to tell me, you know what? Some of them are dialoguing with me and we've had productive conversations and we're going to write a book together or something like that. What saddens me is that it's almost like we're doubling down on our belief systems because our beliefs on, in your case of with the great sex rescue, some of the books you referenced, their beliefs on sex are more important to them than the truth of God. That's how I see it. Am I, am I wrong to make that connection, in your opinion? No, I don't think so. This has been one of the hardest emotional journeys for us. Um, it isn't just that the authors uh, won't engage. It's that there's been a whole blackout, a media blackout from the largest Christian media organizations. Focus on the family won't engage. Um, I wasn't really expecting them to, but you know, just big media blackouts. We've been blacklisted from counseling conferences, et cetera, um, because some of these authors are powerful. You know, that's been hard because all we're saying, all we're saying is that sex should be mutual, intimate, and pleasurable for both. And I don't know why that is so controversial. And the fact that it's controversial breaks my heart. 
if you look at all of the the messages that I told you that were harmful and a couple of other ones, all of them result in more sex for women, lower orgasm rates, lower arousal rates, more chance that she's only going to want to have sex because she has to, higher rates of sexual pain, lower trust in her husband, lower marital satisfaction. Like they all do bad things, really, really bad things. But there's one thing, there's one thing they do that many people would see as something good which is most of these messages result in a slightly higher frequency of sex. I'm not talking like six times a week instead of zero. I'm talking like, you know, 2.3 instead of 1.9. Like it's not, it's not huge, but a slightly higher frequency of sex. And it makes me wonder if that is the only measure that matters to many people is just making sure that she puts out more because we don't want him to be deprived. That's how it's often phrased, right? She's not supposed to deprive him. But let me tell you, hon, if she's not having an orgasm and she doesn't feel intimate, she is already being deprived and those verses don't even apply. <laughs> well, we say all the time, too, that spiritual abuse is a precursor to sexual abuse. And I feel mm -hmm. really passionate about that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a professional. You are much more educated in this area than I am. But my theory is... It has nothing to do with the sex, really, for these faith leaders. It really has to do with the power. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care if they're getting, they probably do care if they're getting more sex, but also they have to hold on and white knuckle any of these messages that allow them to continue to hold their power. I think the fear is that if women start believing that they are worth something in this area, they might start believing it in other areas too. And, you know, if you're listening to this and sex is not intimate, you feel used. Uh, he never takes any time to figure out how to make you feel good. You feel pressured. He lectures you with Bible verses. You know, it is okay to say, I want to make love to you. I want to have a totally passionate sex life with you, but I'm no longer willing to be used because that's not sex the way God intended. And by allowing you to use me, then I am enabling you to look less and less like Christ. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Amen. Like it's okay for women to speak up. Now, if in your marriage that would not be a safe thing to do, please, please contact a domestic violence shelter or talk to a licensed counselor, because if that's not a safe thing for you to do, that's a big red flag that there's something wrong in your marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, with you saying that, I feel like it's important for us to say that you do need to go to an outside source and not to your church with that at this point, because time and time mm -hmm. again, we have seen, especially in the Acts 29 network, churches mishandle domestic abuse. So yes. please do get help, but you you have to go to the proper authorities for it. And it's okay mm -hmm. to go to the proper authorities and not your pastor. Yeah. <sighs> you mentioned, Sheila, the, the woman in the well story. I read a uh, something from the Junia Project about that scripture, that passage where Jesus was talking at the woman in the well, and he sat down with her. And uh, the reason why I was looking for it is because I heard an older sermon from a prominent Acts 29 pastor talk about the woman in the well and his emphasis was more about her being a prostitute. He used a different word to call her, called her something different, more vulgar. And this wasn't Mark Driscoll, by the way. And uh, and then Jesus needing to rest, like how 
Jesus needed to rest. He sent his boys to get him food. That's what he said. Sent my boys to get me food. And then I needed to rest. And he, you know, and his takeaway was like, as pastors, you need to rest. And as I read the junior project, this, this, uh, and I can post the article, what they said, what they said was, um, you know, we've been taught that she was a prostitute, but the reality is, is that she wasn't because she knew people in the town. She was living with a man. If you understand, you know, uh, Sumerian and Hebrew culture back then, there's no way that she would have been a prostitute and still been recognized by the town or even a man would have lived with her at the time. But the best thing they do is they say, but look how Jesus talks to her. He acknowledges her. He doesn't call her sin out. He acknowledges her as a person. He talks to her as somebody, as like a matter of fact, oh yeah, you have five husbands. And then to your point, that's the very first time that he says, I am the Messiah. And then that woman goes back into the town and tells people, you need to come see this guy. I think I know who the Messiah is, which the town would have never listened to her if she was a prostitute. But I'm glad you brought that story up because I really think as a man, you know, I've been raised to have an unhealthy view of sex and sexuality and marriage. Thankfully, by the grace of God, through friendship and discipleship, that has not been a part of my life and my marriage. But as a man, I want to speak to all the other men, is this is an area that we need to not only repent, but we need to lead. We need to lead to have these dialogues because it is important to the wholeness of not only our wives and our sisters in Christ, but if we want to have any impact in the church, this area has to be redeemed, because Mm -hmm. I I really believe it's linked to so many different things, because it's been linked to so many different things in my life. I I just want to say that, and I'm glad you brought that that story up, because I think what you're doing, as people have, you said, have blacked you out or not selling your book, is disgraceful and wrong. And it breaks my heart as a man that these men are using their their pride is getting in the way of not reading your word and going, hey, there's something here that we can all learn together. Let's work together for them. So I'm just really sorry. I think historically people have always been scared of women who understand their sexuality because <laughs> then the thought is they might actually start making some ex they might have some expectations and they might mm-hmm. uh, start feeling free. And so it's not uncommon in very patriarchal societies that they always clamp down on women's sexuality. And when you look at our orgasm gap, it is larger than the secular one. There was an interesting Twitter thread going around. I don't know if you saw it um, about how, I think it was last week. I forget the guy who posted it, but how everyone's always down on Christians, but we're doing better on so many levels. And he, he had how our sexual satisfaction is higher. Yeah. I, yeah. And I replied to that. I said, here's the issue, though. Evangelical women have been taught our whole lives that our identity is in our marriage and sex life. And so when you ask women to rate their marriages, they rate their marriages really high. But then if you ask them how much housework does your husband do, does he listen to your opinions, does he whatever, then all of a sudden the objective, the more objective measures can be quite low, but they don't correlate to how women rate their marriage. Whereas non-Christian women (laughs) will rate their marriages lower if he doesn't do the housework or if he doesn't listen to her opinions or if he doesn't. And it's the same with sex. Women will rate their sex lives really high in evangelicalism, even if they don't orgasm, even if they don't feel close, because they've been told this is such an important part. 
And we know that that women's orgasm rates is lower among evangelicals than it is among long-term relationships in the secular world. We know that our sexual pain is twice as high, at least twice as high, if not higher. Like we have some real issues, but (laughs) you don't always see that in a lot of these flash surveys. And I think that that's something that needs to be countered is that we actually aren't doing well in this area. (laughs) And there's a lot of room for improvement. We need to get real and look at this and all its ugliness (laughs) and and say, what is it that Jesus wants? Because it isn't this. Let's move towards real intimacy and vulnerability and authenticity and care and servanthood. You know, that's what Jesus is calling us to. And people would be happier. Marriages would be happier in churches. Pastors would be happier as well. If, if they made that shift and made that investment, I, I would, I, I, I think your book is amazing. Again, your book is called the great sex rescue. And I, I think it's an amazing book and it's a great resource, but what are some other resources that you would suggest that in the realm of sexuality or sex uh, for our listeners to check out? Well, I have two books launching next week, actually. So they'll probably yeah. be launched by the time this comes out. Um, so I rewrote The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex completely for its 10th anniversary. So I think I kept three sentences. <laughs> I completely rewrote it to go with our new research. And then my husband and I got together and we wrote The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. So I kind of feel like The Great Sex Rescue is like in Ecclesiastes 3 where it talks about there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones together. You know, we scattered the stones for the great sex rescue. We 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 knocked down the walls. We said, here's, here's what we're doing wrong. Here's what needs to be fixed. And then in these two books, we're trying to build healthy sexuality from the ground up. You know, here's what it yes. would look like if we did it right from the start. Uh, so it's wonderful. Let it be, let them be the newlywed gifts, the bridal shower gifts for anyone getting married. Or if you're married for a while and just sex has never worked really well, there's a lot of fun technical stuff about the sexual response cycle that I haven't seen in other secular book or other Christian books, stuff about um, responsive versus spontaneous libidos and things like that. So good girl's guide to great sex and good guy's guide to great sex. We also on my website, we have a puberty course. Uh, if you want to talk to your kids about sex and puberty, that's awesome. Um, we have a girl, a mother daughter version or a single mom and son version and a dad and son version for younger kids and older kids. So you can check that out on our website at to love, honor and vacuum.com. And yeah, in terms of other books, like I said, the gift of sex by the penners was really good. But that's the only other Christian one that I could recommend. And I think in your yeah. appendix, you do reference some books, some of the good. I think you, you have the scoring. I'm looking at it right now. Is it a scoring mm-hmm. in your appendix where you score each of the yeah. books? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's there too. Yeah, I mean, the book's amazing. So I, I do have, we have two more questions. The, you, there are a lot of great sto- redemptive stories in this book. And as you go through the book, you reference not only some of the research or uh, responses to the research you've received, but also blog posts uh, that you've made, that comments that you've received as well. What are like one or two of your favorite either posts or stories that you've uh, seen or heard about as you've gone through the writing of this book, research and writing of the book? Well, let me tell you about Kay. Um, So Kay and her husband actually had a really good sex life when they were first married. Everything worked really well. She was orgasmic. Things were things were going really well. Uh, and then she had three kids. And with each kid, it got more and more difficult. She was tired. With the last one, she, she had quite a bit of uh, traumatic birth injury and postpartum depression. Uh, and so after she healed, 
Um, she was still quite low, but she tried to initiate again and tried to get back into sex. And she was initiating every 72 hours because that's what we're taught. 72 hour rule. You know, it's in sheet music. It's in every man's battle. It's in power of praying wife. James Dobson started it in 1970 based on absolutely nothing. And everyone's repeated it ever since. So she's initiating every 72 hours like she's supposed to. And this goes on for two years. She can't orgasm anymore. And she finally goes to her husband and she says, I just can't do this. I feel like an object. I, I just can't. And he said he was just surprised. He didn't know that she was feeling obligated. And he said, I never, ever want you to do something you don't want to do. Like if we're in the middle of something and you change your mind, I want you to speak up. Like this has to be for both of us. It can't just be for, for me. And over the next little while, he proved that. You know, if she said no in the middle, he would stop, he would roll over and he would go to sleep or they would cuddle and he was fine. Like he proved it to her and she found her desire coming back. She was finally able to be orgasmic again when it wasn't done out of duty. And after like about a year, they settled into a new routine where they have sex every 72 hours. <laughs> but it's totally different now because it's not out of obligation. And the reason I like that story is that it wasn't the husband who was making Kay do this. It was mm -hmm. the fact that she had internalized all of these messages from all these Christian books and from the Christian subculture that we're in. And her husband was actually a good guy, and he was able to be a real servant to her. You know, he was able mm -hmm. to say, no, I want to honor you. I want this to be for us. And because of that, she discovered her sexuality again. You know, so he helped her on that. And that's what, that's what we've heard so often is, it's not always the guys that are doing this to the wives. <laughs> it's often the, message, yeah. the messages that we've internalized. And then I've also heard from guys who were doing this to their wives. <laughs> and they've read the book and they've realized I was lied to. I was taught this was a need like water. Like mm -hmm. I, can, I, I can't function without this. And it's a lie. It's not true. And I have been terrible to my wife. And I have just seen so many relationships be rebuilt. And if you want to understand it, please, everybody, right now, just go to Amazon, look up The Great Sex Rescue, and just read the reviews. Because <laughs> yes. the reviews, that's what they're all saying. Like, I feel validated. I feel heard. I feel like we can finally start over. It's it's just been so encouraging. That's that's amazing. Huh. And there are a lot of great, I mean, there's a lot of good story. I think is the, that story is in the book, though that uh, about Kay. It is. Yeah, yeah. cuz I remember that one. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of redemptive stories in the book which uh, John and I all in the podcast we're trying to really focus on you know these abuse survivors, what does their faith look like today? Where are they today? How are they healing? What does their community look like today? And trying to really help them turn that corner or we want to be a resource to help them turn that corner into a, a new type of environment and family of faith. And I really appreciated that about your book is that, I mean, a lot of the statistics are, they're damning, you know, they're, they're not only are they damning, but they're alarming, but then you really paint these beautiful pictures of redemption too, in your book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just great. It's really refreshing and it's encouraging. So recently I've been talking to a few people about this, that even just this podcast, I viewed like two hands that like this podcast we're tearing everything down and ripping it apart in this other hand, like hopefully one day we'll be able to provide resources to like see restoration and the church being rebuilt. 
And I realized, similar to what you were saying with the scattering and then the gathering together, that they're all part of the same process. It's just steps in the process. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sad that people would see what you're doing as just a tearing down and like, let's throw it out because it's a tearing down. When the things that you are tearing down are bad things that need to be torn out. It's like having a building that has asbestos. You can't just leave that in there. You got to tear it out if you're rebuilding and restoring that building. And I'm so excited to see more and more couples and pastors and churches embracing what it looks like to view people as humans and their imago day and all the glory and beauty that god created them in and to see sexual relationships within the church flourishing like god created and intended them to and for us not to be scared of having these conversations and not to be filled with shame i'm so excited hopefully even from women just hearing you on the podcast today for the conversations that are going to happen within marriages where women are freed to say I feel like an object and I need you to come alongside me in this and partner with me. And I want to see our sex life be something that's beautiful. Like how amazing is that? How exciting is that, that you get to be a part of that story for so many people? I'm just, I'm so blessed by that, by getting to hear you speak on this and knowing how much of a tool and blessing you are for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> where where can our listeners find you? Where's the best way to connect with you and interact with you, Sheila, if they'd like to? Um, so you can find me at my website to love, honor, and vacuum.com. And then I also have the Bear Marriage podcast, B-A-R-E, on Thursdays. But uh, if you go to to lovehonoredvacuum.com, everything's linked there. My Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook, and all the books and all the courses and everything is there. So. Some of my favorite things that Sheila does on her Instagram are like fixed it for you posts <laughs> where she'll post like really troubling passages from books or sermons, things that are, have gone viral or that she's just heard that are like eh, red flag. We need to address this and she'll fix it to be something that is healthy and God honoring. And it really helps you see how damaging some of these things that in the past, in my past, I would have looked at that and been like, well, that is how it is. Or, yep, that man just just said something that's he's just spitting the truth out, you know, and then to see it and then see you put she crosses it out with red and writes something healthy and true and good in in the place of the disgustingness. It's so helpful. And I really believe that a huge part of all of us on this journey, whether it be healing from spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, which actually I almost want to say that the way that we've been taught is a form of abuse. It is almost a form of sexual abuse because like you said, it's affecting women probably and men sexually as if they were victims. So again, Sheila, thank you so much for for joining us. It was a pleasure to talk with you. So again, uh, Sheila Gregoire's book is The Great Sex Rescue, and we're going to post a link to uh, not only your website, but also to your Twitter feed, if that's okay. And then we'll also link to your new Mm -hmm. books if we can, so that people can um, check those out as well. Jonna, I know, has read the book. I've read the book. Jonna's read it twice. Um, I've only read it <laughs> once, but I highly recommend it. It's an amazing book. 
So if you're a listener of the Bodies Behind the Best podcast, please go out and get the book and support Sheila and her co-authors and the research they're doing, because it is definitely, uh, it's not only life-changing for us as Christians, but I think it's just life-changing for people in general. Um, so thank mm-hmm. you, Sheila, for your work. We really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us today. It was a great, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Thank well, you. thank you. And thank you for what you're doing with your podcast, too. It's just, it's good to hear people speak out. Because I, I find it so interesting how Jesus came and it was always the ragtag bunch <laughs> that, that he collected around him. It wasn't the powerful, um, but it was that ragtag bunch that changed everything. And so I think we all are. We're just a ba- ragtag bunch. The, the powers that be don't yeah, like us, but right. people are listening. And that's where change comes. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Sex was never meant to be a burden or a requirement. It is a gift and a joyous celebration of love for a sacred union, a union that needs mutual kindness and empathy. But some have twisted and changed sex into a one-sided hierarchy that demands obedience at all costs. Later in Matthew, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they tie heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on the shoulders of other people. Jesus would never tell his followers that it is acceptable to sacrifice the dignity and worth of another person for their own sexual satisfaction. This is why I'm thankful for the authors of The Great Sex Rescue, Sheila, Rebecca, and Joanna. Because through their work, they are helping all of us reclaim a beautiful and passionate intimate life that is centered in the gentleness and humility of our kind Savior. For John A. Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. (laughs) 